You're listening to an Anazal Ministries podcast. Have you ever wondered why any of us are here? Like, why, why did God bother creating? Like, if we're going to believe that God created all things, why did he do that? Well, if you're looking for a podcast with all the answers about the purpose of creation, why God did that whole thing, that's going to help you better understand your faith, better understand God, then you have come exactly to the wrong place. But if you're looking for a show that's going to help you ask questions, struggle with differing opinions of smart theologians, and leave you clueless, then you found the perfect show for you. This is a show designed to give you more questions than answers. I am Joshua Knoll, and I am just a dummy who loves God and loves theology, and I hope to show my love for God by studying and thinking deeply about the topics and, uh, and the people who have studied these topics that are smarter than me and have been thinking about this for thousands of years. So the Bible pretty clears out, pretty clearly lays out. We talked about this the last couple of times. God created. So going through Genesis, starting chapter one, verse one, and we're just like, anytime something comes up that sparks theological conversations that we can look at, we're looking at. So, so far we've made it through part of verse one. So we discussed in the beginning, what is beginning? What is time? How does God relate to time? We did an episode about that. Um, then this next part is God created the heavens and the earth. So we did an episode talking about what is heaven, where is heaven, where is God? We did an episode of what does it mean that God created? You know, evolution. Um, was it 10,000 years ago? Was it a long time? Like, what does it mean that God created? And today we're going to talk about why. Why did God create the heavens and the earth? What was his purpose? Was it just just because? Was he just kind of feeling a little silly one day? I was like, yeah, let's just spit out some stuff. Why did God create? Throughout history, the church has taught that there is a reason for our being, for creation, that God, there's a reason that God created. But the church has also disagreed greatly on how, what, or why that, like, what, what is the reason? We've disagreed about what the reason is. We agree that there is one. So we spoke last time on how God created. I mentioned that earlier. Um, it's going to come up again. You know, if we're going to say that God made an earth that was already aged, if we're going to say that God let everything just kind of happen and evolve on its own, that's going to give us a little bit of different insight, a little bit different takes, make some of these theories of why God created a little bit more challenging. And that's what we talked about, how God created first. So however you answer that question is probably going to have an impact on how you think about why God created. So some say it's because God is love. This is why he created. God is love. And he creates as a form of love. And a, one expression of love is to create. Um, think about parents. One expression of, you know, a couple's love for each other sometimes might be that they, they want to bring a new life in the world. They want to raise a child together. That might be an expression of their love, right? So if God in himself is love, some people will argue that creation is just a form of love. That is why he created. Some people are going to argue that God created to give himself glory and to make his glory known. God is so great and so deserving of glory. He needed something to exist to give him glory. Not that he needed glory, but he created so that something would give him glory, but he didn't necessarily need it would be a lot of their people's arguments because a lot of people say that God doesn't need anything, especially if you're getting into the realm of omnipotence, which a lot of people, but not all believe in that kind of theory. And that's usually the same group are the people who are saying that God created to give himself glory. So you have a little bit of this struggle there of God made creation for his glory, but also he does not need anything, including glory. Okay. The third reason would be some others will still say 
God is a creator. Like who God is, is creator. So by nature of his very being, he can't help it. He just kind of, creation just kind of comes from him because that's what he is. So those are the three ones. God creates because he is love and creating is a form of love. There is the argument that God creates to give himself glory so that creation can praise him, glorify him as a reflection of his glory. And then the other one is just, he can't help it. He's a creator. It just kind of happens. Um, it's like an extreme version of some people are an artist. They just can't help but do art. You know, um, some people are preachers. They can't help but preach. God's a creator. He just can't help but create. But it, like this is like a more literal version of that. Like he literally can't help but create because he is creator. That is what he is. So starting with the early church, what, what did the early church th- take? Like which one of these three views or what nuance or what, you know, offshoot of these views did they take? Well, most of our church fathers and Christian theologians throughout history, um, like we said, they agree there is a purpose. There's a reason God created. There's a purpose. And we mentioned before, the disagreement comes with what the purpose is. And some of that's going to start even about the disagreement around inerrancy. Um, when you're talking about like the early church fathers, they didn't have the term inerrancy, but they still disagreed on how little the Bible was, how true the Bible was, that kind of stuff. Um, but most of them are going to agree. All scripture teaches us important lessons to edify and build up the church. All scripture does that, whether they believe it's literal, whether they believe it's completely factual, they tend to agree there is a purpose for creation and that there is a purpose for scripture. And the purpose of scripture is to teach us important lessons to edify and build up the church. So whether it's literal or not, the purpose is the same to edify and build up the church. The church to most of the church fathers are going to be God's people. Whether that's literally people in a church building or not, doesn't matter. The church, the ecclesia is God's people. And the scripture exists to edify and build up God's people. So let's start with that. Let's start with inerrancy. I think that's really going to kind of build into how we interpret and think about these things. So what is inerrancy? Some people believe in inerrancy because they believe in order for scripture to be trustworthy at all. Everything has to be true. Well, if this is false, then we could say anything's false. And that's sort of the mindset that a lot of these people take. It's not necessarily a fallacy because if your argument is all scripture comes directly from God and as such is true, it's not a slippery slope. Your argument is that it all has to be true because God put it there, which means if any of it is false, the whole argument is false. It's not actually a slippery slope argument, but it may look like one on face value. So, Second one, what is an inerrancy? What are some of these other views? A lot of people are going to argue there's places in the Bible that contradicts themselves. So scripture cannot be inerrant. Um, and, and of course, there's different takes on this. So even if you look at Genesis 1 and 2, you have different order of creation. Genesis 1, all of the animals are created and the man and woman at the same time. Genesis 2, man's created first, then the animals, then the woman. Which one is it? Can't be both. Um, I personally, that's why I think a lot of the Bible isn't meant to be literal because you have things like this where the stories are put place by place, almost like God's making sure we don't get confused and say, hey, see, it's pretty obvious this isn't literal, right? And yet a lot of people still take it literal. Um, not dissing on them. I just disagree. I'm just a dummy. That's just my opinion. But a lot of people will take it a little bit further than I would, where I say, see, it just seems like this wasn't meant to be literal. And they'll take it to say, see, so we know that the Bible isn't all inerrant. They'll say that there's errors in the Bible, that the error is wrong. What I will say is there isn't an error because the purpose wasn't to tell us a literal story. That's not an error. That's just a different purpose than what we think of in Western culture. 
But a lot of people will say, because places like that, there's places um, in the New Testament where the order of Jesus' tem- uh, temptations are given different in two different books. There's um, one people say the Sermon on the Mount was on a mountain. Another says it was on a plane. Some people try to argue that away. A lot of people say, see, it can't be inerrant because there's these contradictions. There's different dates given for different things, different names given for certain kings. All throughout the Bible, there's a lot of stuff that doesn't add up. A lot of people take that say that that means there are errors in the Bible. I'm letting you know, I usually don't give my position, but for this purpose, I'll let you know. I don't usually say that I believe in inerrancy because it confuses people, but I don't think there is any error in the messages of the Bible. And I think that's the purpose of the book. So that I would say there's no error if you're really going to push me on it. But a lot of people think that can't grasp that idea that before our Western mindset and an Eastern mindset in a different time, they wrote for a different purpose. So yeah, there's not an error. They weren't trying to tell you history. But it's just a disagreement on what inerrancy is. Then you get to number three. We're thinking about inerrancy, what inerrancy is. A lot of arguments persist for eternity, forever and ever. Um, to me, it just, it seems like inerrancy does kind of do some leaps that kind of have to stretch to really make it seem like, oh, see, there's not an error. We can explain the reason that this order is given differently here. We can explain the two different names this way. And they keep kind of stretching and manipulating. That's just my perspective, my opinion. I think like a lot of the manipulations being done to make it seem like there aren't these contradictions. When, when you have to work that hard for so many different places to not seem like they're contradicting, at some point you have to say, well, maybe we're wrong and there just are contradictions. That's just me. But there are a lot of people who are, are much smarter than me that would defend inerrancy. We're thinking of Martin Luther himself, John Calvin, Wayne Grudem, Martin Lloyd-Jones, a lot of people way smarter than I believe in inerrancy. So I'm never going to dismiss that belief or act like it's dumb belief. Like that's just, and if I have, I apologize. I don't mean to because these people are infinitely smarter than I. Talking about those things I mentioned earlier, um, the different temptations given in the gospel, the mountain plain, some sacrifices even in Leviticus are said you have to do it one way. Then in Deuteronomy, it says, actually, you can't do it that way. You have to do it this other way. A lot of stuff don't adds up. So we're talking about some of the people who don't necessarily agree with inerrancy, um, you're going to go all the way to some of the early church fathers, Augustine, you're going to go with people like Pete Inns today, Tom Ord, also people who are way smarter than I. Check Definitely check out Pete Inns and Tom Ord stuff, I'll say that much. Um, now, inerrancy does provide some security, and it flows well from the argument of God's omnipotence. So if you're going to start with God needs to be all-powerful, well, if God is all powerful, why would his book not be completely true if he has the ability to do that? So that that's a nice, even though I do believe in omnipotence, a lot of people take omnipotence to use that to build up a, a view of inerrancy that I don't necessarily agree with. But I do think that argument makes a lot of sense to go, if God's all powerful, why wouldn't he make an all true Bible? Of course he would, right? Um, and if we're talking about God creating everything ex nihilo, we mentioned that earlier, out of nothing then we assume he's all-powerful because he made all of the things. Of course, he has power over it, right? So that's just kind of that builds up that argument for inerrancy. Um, it does make a huge assumption about how we got the Bible. That's one of the big problems with inerrancy, though. Um, the Bible is a work of humans. A lot of us will agree it's inspired by God and it's been confirmed through tradition. So throughout the Catholic Church is what, is what confirmed and gave us the scripture we have. Today, it was, you know, changed a little bit when Martin Luther and some of the reformers came in, 
and even them and their own tradition, they were looking back to St. Jerome and looking again to tradition to confirm what they believe scripture should have been. And I just took some books out, but all the books that Protestants believe in, Catholics believe in, all the books that Catholics and Protestants believe in, Orthodox believe in, but they also have some additions in Catholic and Orthodox churches. Um, so a lot of books have been removed and added throughout time because of stuff like this. We found that many places where our English interpretations were off from the original copies, we're able to see that as we like do some more archaeology. We find um, Dead Sea Scrolls. You know, so some people, when they say inerrancy, they mean that what we have right now was completely accurate and completely true. Some people, so when they say inerrancy, they mean what we have now is as close as we can get. And the original copy is what was completely true and completely accurate. Some people, when they say they don't believe in inerrancy, they mean they don't agree with either of those things. Some people just mean they don't agree with one of those things, you know. Um, I personally, I told you, like, I don't think either, I think we're kind of missing the point. I don't think the point of scripture and ancient Near Eastern literature was to tell us literal history. I think the point was to get some messages, to get these themes and principles out. I think that though, since that is the point of the scripture, I don't think there's any error because those points were made. So the most common argument here today is that God created to show his own glory or to have his glory be made. So we mentioned that when we gave the three earlier, that's the most common one. Um, God is all powerful. Thus he gave us a completely literal and true book. And when he created, why would he create? Well, he created so that there would be things that would reflect his glory. And so that we would worship him and give him glory, give him praise. A lot of people would say that's kind of the language around that. Um, it's the most at face argument, but that also means that the uh, arguments against it are pretty face value arguments against it. Um, saying that God created so that he could be worshipped kind of portrays God as being a little bit prideful, a little full of himself, a little egotistical. So a lot of proponents of the stance are going to say that – sorry, a lot of the people against the stance are going to say God is not egotistical. God is not prideful. God does not sin. This is sinful behavior you're talking about. So this cannot be why God created proponents of this argument instead are going to say that God's not egotistical. He's not being prideful. He just actually does deserve all glory. So he created things to reflect that. It's just being realistic to what kind of they would argue that God's doing. So we get to some of the other arguments. Um, one argument that I find a little bit more persuasive than the all glory argument is that God is love and he creates out of love. That's one that just makes a lot of sense to me. I mentioned earlier, you know, couples sometimes want to create out of love. You know, people on their own you know, for, for me personally, just, just getting personal with you guys, I have a pollinator garden on the side of my house. I do things so that butterflies will come and they'll have a little nesting area. You know, I, I want there to be a place, you know, I didn't create necessarily, but I planted seeds. You know, I, I watered things. I nurtured it so that these creatures can come by, lay their eggs, have their whole ecosystem over there, and that life will persist, that life will continue. Why? Because I love creation. You know, I love nature. And that's just a reflection of the love is to create and to nurture this garden. The argument here being that God created for a similar reason. God has love. He loves his creation before they were even created. So that goes back to how does God relate with time? Whether linear, whether God is his own outside of time, outside of the flow, whether we're in like a box, whatever, God knew what he was going to, what he was doing when he created. I think we all can agree that he had a pretty good idea what he was doing. And he, he loved us or the idea of us so much that he created as out of love. He's like, oh, I just I can't wait for humans. They're so cool. You know, I just imagine God up there. He's just all excited. He's like, oh, butterfly. Oh, I can't wait. Watch this. Butterflies are going to be tight. You know, 
maybe even thinking of what we would create, you know, just like um, you think of like your generation to come, like when your kids have kids, you know, he's like, one day these humans are going to make trains. It's going to be sick. You know, God was excited. Like I imagine God being a creator. You know, he's an artist. He's excited for what he's doing. He's excited for what's being made, what's going to happen down the line. He's excited for the story that's going to unfold throughout time. You know, I, I love this depiction that God created out of love, like just for the purpose of loving and having things to love. And because love does not exist in of itself. So I think God, I'm okay saying needs things to love because God is love. And of course, I also think the reason I'm okay saying that partially is because God is a Trinity. So God loves the father, loves the son, the son loves the father, the father and the son love the spirit. The spirit loves the son, loves the father. So I think that, that God himself exists in community. And he creates so that we would exist in community. And because just as an outpouring and expression of his love, he just keeps creating. I don't think God will ever stop creating. I think create. That's why you see when you look at science that the universe is internally expanding. It never stops. It's because God will never stop creating. There's so many verses in the Bible that's, you know, earth, the creation is in pains. It's still birthing. It's still going through the process. Um, I think it's because God will always be creating. Not just, not because he has to create because he's a creator, but because he is love, and that's what love does. Love creates. That's the argument that I like the most. The biggest pushback, I think, against this one is usually just to say that God didn't need to create. Like, uh, he, basically, you're saying that, that there was no need for creation. And why would God do something that was just pointless? I think that's sort of the biggest pushback against that one. Um, or that it's it kind of applies that love needed something to love. And, you know, God doesn't have a need. So, there, there's a lot of little nuanced pushbacks against that. And there's places in the Bible that really do kind of say God made us for his glory kind of stuff. So a lot of people will point to that. See, it actually has to be this other reason. So that's just kind of the pushbacks on that. Um, finally, the third position is that, that we mentioned God is creator and creation just kind of comes from him. Just, he is a creator. So as long as he exists, creation just kind of comes out of him. It kind of, to me, seems a little like it doesn't have a purpose, but this position is helpful in putting the focus on the character of God. Who is God? You know, we're not thinking about what is creation? Why would he want that? We're not thinking about like, how do we reflect the glory or anything? We're just thinking about who God is and his character. So I think that's a really big, like, check mark and why this, this view is actually kind of helpful. Um, but it faces a lot of the same problems as some of the other arguments. It shows God as kind of inactive, like he wasn't intentionally doing anything when he created um, it implies God was not necessarily in control. That just happened. Um, kind of makes it seem like he's not all powerful in that sense, that he couldn't have chose not to. And it also makes it seem that God was not really invested or loving in his act. So those are the pushbacks against that one. Um, but we know some great theologians throughout history who argued that. When we're going to go to our church history. We're thinking of Origen in the first and second centuries. He argued that creation just exudes from God. So he was a proponent of the last one. He's like, just like light comes from the sun, creation comes from the creator. Um, God is love. So all things are made through love by God's very being. It's kind of what Origen would say. He said, the primary purpose of creation is a metaphor for the Christian's life and is meant to refocus us on heaven. Go a little bit further, fourth, fifth centuries, we're talking about Augustine. You know, St. Augustine said that God created to show his own glory and to reveal his righteousness. I know the most popular one we were talking about earlier, God created to show his glory. Um, the point of creation is to encourage us to pursue righteousness, according to Augustine. Still in the fourth century, we're going to talk about St. Ambrose. He believed that God created to show his power and his might. Ambrose would say that um, he believed in a really literal interpretation of scripture. He said creation is a story 
um, that shows us how powerful God is, which, you know, if it, that's why it has to be literal because it's showing God's power. If it's figurative, how powerful is the guy really, you know? So he believes stories about a powerful God that we might fear him and worship him better as we ought to. So that's Ambrose. Now we're skipping way ahead. We're doing the 13th century Saint Aquinas. Not my favorite of the saints, but you know, whatever. He's still a smart theologian. Um, he believed that God created out of love, which is funny because that's sort of my view. Um, he, there was a threefold creation in Genesis 1 reflects that God creates, God sorts, and God adorns. So he thinks creation happens in these three stages, creation, sorting, adornment. Um, Aquinas would say that he believed the story points us to understanding the sovereignty, structure, and order of God, and that God wants to know wants us to know just kind of how clever he is, basically. Um, when we're thinking about creation, sorting, and, or, and ornament, um, even if you look at the whole story of the Bible, Aquinas would kind of really expand that. You know, God made all the things, and then you see the God, these are my people, these are not my people, here are my rules and my ways, here's what's not okay with me, here are the ways of heaven, here are the ways of hell, here are the ways of the righteous, here are the ways of the wicked. So you see a lot of that sorting throughout the Bible. And then adornment. In the end, God rectifies us back to him. He He makes us beautiful in him, is what a lot of the New Testament says. So that's kind of how Aquinas comes to this creation, sorting, adornment view of why God created and how God created. Then, a little bit further, we're going 15th, 16th century. We're looking at Martin Luther, the um, one of the reformers, talking about the Protestant Reformation. He believed that God created to show his own goodness. Sovereignty and power. So creation is a reflection of goodness, sovereignty, and power of God. Um, Luther says it's important that creation came from nothing, ex nihilo, as we mentioned last time, because that shows how powerful God is, that he didn't need anything. He created all of the things. Everything comes from God. He is the source of everything. The story points believers to worship better, seeing that God is in control and that he possesses all power so that he could have made all things. A little bit further, 20th century, we're talking about my man, C.S. Lewis, love that guy. He also, he'd agree with me, and you know, Aquinas, creating is an act of love. God created because God is love, and creating is an act of love. Um, the scripture is not literal. He does not believe in literal scripture. Yachtel, I really get a lot from Lewis here, but uh, he says, it is meant to show us that God's in control, God is sovereign, and ultimately, that God is self-giving. So he created of himself. So to Lewis, it's important that it was ex nihilo because creation comes from God. God gives of himself to create as an act of love. Um, he also is important that, you know, he doesn't think scripture is literal. He thinks that this story still tells us some stuff about God, that he is in control. It tells us that he is sovereign, that he is giving of himself. You know, sovereign being that God is overseeing what will happen, when it will happen. He's in control of the order of time. Um, so Lewis thinks we don't need the story to be literal for those points to still be true. Same century, Martin Lloyd-Jones, 20th century, where he believed that God created to show his own glory, back to that stance, and that it was an act of love to create. So uh, he's kind of playing in between these, like halfsies. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones will argue that these chapters are historical readings, super literal. Not like Lewis. It's important to understand the trustworthiness of the Bible and how this story foreshadows how God will come as Jesus gives of himself again in a new creation. So again, he's saying that God is self-given. We see that God created everything of himself. And that it's important to Martin Lloyd-Jones to believe that that literal, because it reflects how one day 
Jesus will give us himself when we become a new creation. So you kind of see that parallelism there. I don't think it has to be literal for the parallelism to work. I think the story still works that way, but that is what Martin Lloyd-Jones believed 20th century. Um, I got a couple more currently still with us. John Piper, big guy in the especially SBC circles. He believes that God created to show his own glory. We're going back to that one. Um, he says the creation story exists to show us how God delights in his creation. He's happy with what he made, that he loves what he has made, and that God desires good for all his creation. He wants us to experience happiness. You know, John Piper's got a big old like a Christian hedonism thing that he believes, I think. That's when I'll just tell you, I, I can't stand that term. I think it's stupid. I think John Piper's way smarter than me, so I give him a pass. But, you know, what he views is that God created for his own glory, and that this creation story shows us that God delights in creation and wants us all to be happy. I think it is true that God delights in his creation and wants us all to be happy, even if I disagree with the purpose of the story. That's John Piper, smarter than me. Believe him instead of me if you want. It's fine. Um, another one who has recently, recently passed just this year, Tim Keller, great scholar, love the guy. Um, I think he was PCA, Presbyterian Christian Church of America. Don't quote me. I'm not really sure. God created out of love. This is what Tim Keller says. And to show his own glory. Again, he's playing halfsies with it. He's doing both of those. Um, he says Genesis 1 is literal, but Genesis 2 is not because they can't both be. You know, he saw that where it says God created creation, then man and woman. Then the next story says God created man, then creation, then woman. He says, well, they can't both be literal. They're two different stories. Um, he chooses to believe that chapter 2 was literal. Sorry, I had that backwards. He thinks one is not literal, two is literal. He thinks the reason for that is um, he would say because Paul, when he writes in the New Testament, writes about Adam and Eve as literal in the sec in the story that's in chapter two of Genesis. So he thinks chapter one, not literal, chapter two, literal. I think that's also why he was able to be a um, Christian evolutionist, creation evolutionist. I forget the term. Forgive me. Go back and listen to that episode. Um, he also... According to Tim Keller, he says, the story is meant to show us how good creation is and to praise what work that God did. So we're meant to see how good God did, um, how good creation is, praise God for it, give him the glory. We're meant to admire and appreciate creation. So it seems like he's kind of putting the emphasis more on the glory part. Um, he kind of went halfsies on whether it's love or glory, and he went halfsies on whether it's literal or not. Smart guy, very nuanced takes, um, will be missed. But yeah, that's Tim Keller's use. Um, so we talked a lot about these different views of inerrancy. The Bible literal is it not literal? Is it, um, kind of literal, kind of not? Is it one of those where the original is true or what we have now is completely true? Are they both completely true? Neither of them completely true. Can the Bible have errors? Can it not have errors? Um, and then even why God created, you know, we said that maybe God created because he's creator and he can't help it. It just exudes from him. Maybe God created to give himself glory to make everybody see how awesome he is. Or maybe God created just as an act of love and an expression of love is to create. Which of these are true? Which aren't true? How many of these can both be true? You know, like I, I can both believe that not in the everything in the Bible is literal and still say I believe in inerrancy. Right. But I can't say. It's all literal. And also, I think there's errors. You know, see, a lot of the inerrancy thing is is black and white, but not all of it. There are nuances in that sense. But in this other one, you know, God could create for all three reasons, right? It could be because God is creator, creation exudes from him. 
but he also wants it to exude from him because he loves creating and he wants his creation to reflect his glory. All three of those things can be true. It's a little bit harder because when you include the creation coming from him as creator, because it seems like it's not as intentional. Again, that's my biggest pushback to that one. But also, I'm simply not as smart as Origen. So feel free to side with him on that one. <laughs> as you kind of my take on it. Um, but whatever we choose to believe, there's a lot of implications to our beliefs here. You know, implications about the belief of the character of God, implications of our view of inerrancy. We've already talked about that. There's implications for our doctrine of omnipotence. How powerful is God? If God's doing stuff by accident, seems like he couldn't choose to create. So it impacts our view of the doctrine of omnipotence. Um, it impacts our view of the Imago Dei. You know, are we created in the image of God? Why did he create? What was the purpose? Um, if he created for his own glory, should we glory ourselves? You know, um, what are... What our views of salvation, you know, we already mentioned earlier the parallelism that God had to give of himself to create and give of him. Jesus had to give of himself for us to become a new creation in him. You know, so there's all kinds of implications to really important doctrines here. That we're going to just real quick break down here. Um, first character of God is God love. If God is love himself, man, that says a lot about why he created. If God created out of love, that kind of helps us understand what it means that God is love. Um, is God egotistical, you know? We're going to say he did it for his own glory, and we're going to believe that God just needs to be praised. That tells us something about his character. Is he in control? You know, if it's just exuding from him, if he's just, he is a creator and can't help it, like light comes from the sun, then we kind of see, okay, God's character. God's not really that much in control. Are we just accidents? You know, that says something about us. So we're talking about the character of God. That There's big implications for what you believe about why God created that's going to tell you something about his character. Physical inerrancy. We talked about that already a lot. If you're going to believe in inerrancy, can one and two both be true? How are they both true? How are you going to rectify some of those differences between the one chapter and the other, the stories, the order? Um, some people in the early church would teach that there's two different readings. There's a literal reading and a spiritual reading. Both are there and both are equally true. So there's implications for how you view biblical inerrancy when you think about why God created. Um, the implication for omnipotence, we're thinking, out, did God have a choice to create? If he didn't have a choice, he's not all powerful, right? Does God need us? If he needed us, if he created because he needed something to give him glory or he needed something to love, then he's not all powerful. He he needs something. Um, if everything came out of nothing, well, then it seems like he has to be all powerful. So if creation was ex nihilo, mainly has some big implications about how powerful God is, right? And if he got his sovereign, if God knew, you know, if we're talking about like creationary evolutionist kind of stuff, do you got to know what was going to happen in evolution? Did he plan it out? Is God sovereign? So all this, it, it contributes to our view of omnipotence. Um, when thinking about the image of God, what does it mean that we were created in the image of God? Um, a lot of our church fathers, Augustine, Aquinas, um, both of them kind of agreed. You know, they taught that Genesis was telling us about the threefold nature of God and man. You know, it's God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There is man, woman, creation. They thought that there was something about this story, told us something about who we are as people made in God's image. Um, if we're going to say that creation was an act of love and that we're the product of love and that we're made in God's image, that means that we should be agents of love. And, you know, if we're going to say that God created to show his own greatness, that we have to believe that by an Imago Dei, if we're creating the image of God and God created to show his greatness, then we would have to believe that we are great. Um, if we're just something that exuded from God's being, 
then at minimal, we're still a reflection of God, of who, of who he is. And we should also be creating. You know, if God had to, had to make us, then we're needed by God. That tells us something about who we are made in the image of God. If God, not, if God didn't intentionally make us, then we're accidents. So what does that mean about whether we're loved, whether we're special? What does that mean about us being made in the image of God if we're just an accident? Um, all these characteristics of God revealed that, you know, what we talked about earlier, the characteristics of God that are implied, well, all of those also tell us about what it means to be made in the likeness of God. Because if we're going to learn more about his character, that tells us more about who we are as people made in the image of God. Another doctrine, you know, salvation. I mentioned that was also impacted. You know, if salvation, if what it means to be saved is to be created anew, then we have to know what it means to be created and why we were created in the first place. You know, we're kind of being rectified to that original purpose. So we need to know what that original purpose was. Are we created in love? And are we in need of being recreated in the likeness of love to be agents of love? Or were we created to display God's glory? And what salvation is, is that we failed to show God's glory. So we have to be saved so that we can be great again to reflect his greatness. Um, are we a result of God just creating like light from the sun? In which case, salvation would just kind of be a result of the essence of God being, being shined upon us. Or is salvation in that case, would it be like God being an active participant? Is he an inactive participant? Same thing with salvation. We're going to say that God didn't mean to create us. He's a creator and it just kind of comes from him. Are we going to say that that means when we are saved, the new creation also is just an accident? That doesn't seem right. I don't think anybody would believe in that. But, you know, all of these kind of questions, they all have implications. We think about why we were created, huge implications for these things of what it means to be made in the image of God, what it means to be saved, what it means for God's character, for the power of God, omnipotence, for biblical inerrancy. We talked about all these things because all of it comes down to why did God create? Why did God start all this? So, like I said, we always, this podcast, the main purpose is to give you more questions. I want you to have more questions when you leave this than when you came to this. You know, you thought you had a few questions about why God created. I hope that instead of giving you an answer to those, I made you think, man, I have tons of questions about why God created all this. But I'm going to leave you with three things I want you all to think about a little bit deeper, a little bit more on your own time. Question one is, if I am a result of God creating as an act of love, just assume for this question, just for the purpose of this, if you were a result of God creating just as an act of love, how is that same love shown in your life, both to and through you? Question two, if creation were meant to reflect God's glory, so we're going to say that that one's correct, then where do you see the glory of God in your own backyard? Like just looking around you, what God created around you, or do you see God's glory? And remember, you can believe any combination of these three reasons why God created, whether it's an act of love to reflect his glory or just because he is creator and it exudes from him. You can believe any of those three or only one of those three or none of those three. But for this purpose, I want you to think if this were true, that you were created to reflect God's glory, then where do you see the glory of God around you? All right. Third question I want you all to think about, am I fulfilling the purpose of my creation in my job, in my home life, my church life, etc.? So if God created you as an act of love, are you showing love in these areas? Have he created you for his own glory? Are you showing glory in these areas? Are you showing that God's powerful, that he saved you through a mighty work? Are you showing that there is purpose in your life? Are you living like you have purpose? Maybe that's a better way to ask that. Are you living like you have purpose in your job, at your home life, in your church life? Or are you just kind of passing through? So those are our three questions. If I'm a result of God creating as an act of love, how is that love shown in my own life, both to and through me? If 
creation. We're meant to reflect God's glory. Where do I see the glory of God around me right now? And number three, are you living like you have purpose in your life, in your job, at your home life, at church, etc.? Well, guys, I hope after all this that you're just as confused as I am, that you're inspired to study some of these great theologians we mentioned earlier, Augustine, Aquinas, um, <laughs> Ambrose, Rigen. We mentioned a lot today. I hope you're encouraged to study all of them a little bit more um, and to just keep going in your own faith journeys. Thank you so much for joining this dummy on my journey to learn more about God and to love him better. I hope this has encouraged you to worship God in your own thinking and to keep on struggling. This was an Anazao Ministries podcast. If you'd like to check out other shows like this, be sure to subscribe to the network.